chapter 18. The Commander His name was Gabriel Sweetman and he was a drug lord, sometimes known as the Sugar Man, more often as the Commander. He was born in the slums of Mexico City. Nothing is known about his parents, but he first came to the attention of the police when he was eight years old, selling missing car parts to motorists. The reason the car parts were missing was because he had stolen them, helped by his 12-year-old sister, Maria. When he was 12, he sold his sister. By then, it was said that he had killed for the first time. He moved into the drugs business when he was 13, first dealing on the street, then working his way up until he became the lieutenant to Sonny Gomez, one of the biggest traffickers in Mexico. At the time, it was estimated that Gomez was smuggling $3 million worth of heroin and cocaine into America every day. Sweetman murdered Gomez and took over his business. He also married Gomez's wife, a former Miss Acapulco named Tracy. 30 years later, it was rumoured that Sweetman was worth 25 million billion, rather, 25 billion dollars. He was transporting cocaine all over the world using a fleet of Boeing 727 jet aircraft, which he also owned. He had murdered over 2,000 people, including 15 judges and 200 police officers. Sweetman would kill anyone who crossed his path and he liked to do it slowly. Some of his enemies he buried alive. It was well known that he was mad, but only his family doctor had been brave enough to say so. He had killed the family doctor. I do not know how or why he had come to the attention of Scorpio. It is possible that they had been hired to take him out by another drug lord. It might even have been the Mexican or the American government. He certainly was not being executed because he was bad. Scorpio was occasionally involved in drug trafficking itself, although it was a dirty and unpleasant business. People who spend large amounts of money doing harm to themselves and to their customers are not usually very reliable. Sweetman had to die because someone had paid. That was all it came down to. And it was going to be expensive because this was not an easy kill. Sweetman looked after himself. In fact, he made Vladimir Sharkovsky look clumsy and careless by comparison. Sweetman kept a permanent retinue around him. Not just six bodyguards, but an entire platoon. This was, this was how he got the name of the commander. Is in Los Angeles, Miami and Mexico City, each one as well fortified as any command post. The houses were kept in 24-hour readiness. He never let anyone know when he was leaving or when he was about to arrive. And when he did travel, it was first by private jet and then in an armoured plane. Bulletproof limousine with two outriders and motorbikes and more bodyguards in front and behind. He had four food tasters, one in each of his properties. The house 
where he spent most of his time, was in the middle of the Amazon jungle, 100 miles south of Iquitos. This is one of the few cities in the world that cannot be reached by road, and there were no roads going anywhere near the house either. Trying to approach on foot would be to risk attacks from jaguars, vipers and anacondas, black caimans, piranhas, tarantulas or any of 50 other deadly creatures that inhabited the rainforest, assuming you weren't bitten to death by mosquitoes first. Sweetman himself came and went by helicopter. He had complete faith in the pilot, largely because the pilot's Aldo parents were his permanent guests, and he had given instructions for them to suffer very horribly if ever anything happened to him. Scorpia had looked into the situation and had decided that Sweetman was at his most vulnerable in the rainforest. It is interesting that they had a permanent team of advisors, strategy planners and specialists who had prepared a consultation document for them. The house in Los Angeles was too close to its neighbours. The one in Miami, too well protected. In Mexico City, Sweetman had too many friends. It was another measure of the man that he spent $10 million a year on bribes. He had friends in the police, the army and the government. And if anyone asked questions about him or tried to get too close, he would know about it at once. In the jungle, he was alone and, like so many successful men, he had a weakness. He was punctual. He ate his breakfast at exactly 7.15. He worked with a personal trainer from 8 until 9. He went to bed at 11. If he said he was going to leave at midday, then that is what would happen. This is exactly what Hunter had tried to explain to me the night we met in Venice. Sweetman had told us something about himself. He had a habit and we could use it against him. Hunter and I had flown first from Rome to Lima and from there we had been taken by a smaller plane to Iquitos, an extraordinary city on the south bank of the Amazon with Spanish cathedrals, French villas, colourful markets and straw huts built on stilts, all tangled up together along the narrow streets. The whole place seemed to live and breathe for the river. It was hot and humid. You could taste the muddy water in the air. We stayed for two days in a run-down hotel in the downtown area, surrounded by backpackers and tourists and plagued by cockroaches and mosquitoes. Since so many of the travellers were from Britain and America, we communicated only in French. I spoke the language quite badly at this stage and the practice was good for me. Hunter used the time to buy a few more supplies and to book our passage down the river on a cargo boat. We were pretending to be bird watchers. We were supposed to camp on the edge of the jungle for two weeks and then return to Iquitos. That was our cover story. And while I was on the Malagosto, I learned the names of 200 different species, from the white-fronted Amazon parrot to the scarlet macaw. I believe I could still identify them to this day. Not that anybody asked me too many questions, the captain would have been happy to drop us anywhere, provided we were able to pay. We did not camp. 
as soon as the boat had dropped us off on a small beach with a few Amazon Indian houses scattered in the distance and children playing in the sand, we set off into the undergrowth. We were both equipped with the five items which are the difference between life and death in the rainforest. A machete, a compass, mosquito nets, water purification tablets and waterproof shoes. The last item may sound unlikely, but the massive rainfall and the dense humidity can rot your flesh in no time. Hunter said it would take six days to reach the compound where Sweetman lived. In fact, we made it in five. How do I begin to describe my journey through that vast, suffocating landscape? I do not know whether to call this a heaven or a hell. The world cannot live without its so-called green lungs, and yet the environment was as hostile as it is possible to imagine, with thousands of unseen dangers every step of the way. I could not gauge our progress. We were two tiny specks in that area that encompassed one billion acres, hacking our way through leaves and branches, always with fresh barriers in our paths. All manner of different life forms surrounded us and the noise was endless. The screaming of birds, the croaking of frogs, the murmur of the river, the sudden snapping of branches as some large predator hurried past. We were lucky. We glimpsed a red and yellow coral snake, much deadlier than its red and black cousin. In the night, a jaguar came close and I heard its awful throaty whisper. But all the things that could have killed us left us alone and neither of us became sick. That is something that has been true throughout my whole life. I am never ill. I sometimes wonder if it's a side effect of the injection my mother gave me. It protected me from anthrax. Perhaps it still protects me from everything else. We did not speak to each other as we walked. It would have been a waste of energy and all our attention was focused on the way ahead. But even so, I felt a sort of kinship with Hunter. My life depended on him. He seemed to find the way almost instinctively. I also admired his fitness and stamina as well as his general knowledge of survival techniques. He knew exactly which roots and berries to eat, how to follow the birds and insects to waterholes, or, failing that, how to extract water from vines. He never once lost his temper. The jungle can play with your mind. It is hot and oppressive. It always seems to stand in your way. The insects attack you, no matter how much cream you put on. You are dirty and tired. Hunter remained good-natured throughout. I sensed that he was pleased with our progress and satisfied that I was able to keep up. We only slept for five hours at night, using the moon to guide us after the sun had set. We slept in hammocks. It was safer to be above the ground. After we'd eaten our jungle rations, what we'd found or what we'd brought with us, we climbed in and I always looked forward to the brief conversation the moment of companionship we would have before we slept. On the fourth night, we set up camp in an area which we called the log. It was a circular clearing dominated by a fallen tree. When I had sat on it, I'd almost fallen right through. It was completely rotten and crawling with termites. You've done very well so far, Hunter said. 
It may not be so easy coming back. Why is that? It's possible we'll be pursued. We may have to move more quickly. The red pins. That's right. Whenever we came to a particular landmark, a place with a choice of more than one route, I had seen Hunter pressing a red pin close to the base of a tree trunk. He must have positioned more than a hundred of them. Nobody else would notice them, but they would provide us with a series of pointers if we needed to move in a hurry. What will we do if he isn't there? I asked. Sweetman may have left. According to our intelligence, he's not leaving until the end of the week. And never call him by his name, Cossack. It personalises him. We need to think of him as an object, as dead meat. That's all he is to us. His voice floated out into the darkness. Overhead, a parrot began to screech. Call him the commander. That's how he likes to see himself. When will we be there? Tomorrow afternoon. I want to get there before sunset to give us time to reconnoitre the place. I need to find a position to make the kill. I could shoot him for you. No, Cossack. Thanks all the same. This time, you're strictly here for the ride. We were up again at first light. The sky, silver, the trees and undergrowth dark. We sipped some water and took energy tablets. We rolled up our hammocks, packed our rucksacks and left. Sure enough, we reached the compound in the late afternoon. As we folded back the vegetation, we were suddenly aware of the sun glinting off a metal fence and crouched down, keeping out of sight. It was always possible there would be guards patrolling outside the perimeter. Although after half an hour, we realised that the commander had failed to take this elementary precaution. Presumably, he felt he was safe enough inside Moving very carefully, we circled round, always staying in the cover of the jungle some distance from the fence. Hunter was afraid that there would be radar, trip wires and all sorts of other devices that we might activate if we got too close. Looking through the gaps in the trees, we could see that the fence was electrified and enclosed a collection of colonial buildings spread out over a pale green lawn. They were similar in style to the ones we had seen in Iquitos. There were a lot of guards in dark green uniforms patrolling the area or standing with binoculars and assault rifles in rusting metal towers. Their long isolation had done them no good. They were shabby and listless. Hunter and I were both wearing jungle camouflage with our faces painted in streaks, but if we'd been in bright red, they would not have noticed us. The compound had begun life 20 years before as a research centre for an environmental group, studying the damage being done to the rainforest. They had all died from a mysterious sickness and a week later, the commander had moved in. Since then, he had adapted it to his own needs, adding huts for his soldiers and bodyguards a helicopter landing pad, a private cinema, all the devices he needed for his security. In some ways, it reminded me of the Dakar in Silver Forest, although the setting could not have been more different. It was only their purpose that was the same. The commander lived in the largest house, which was raised off the ground with a veranda and electric fans. 
Presumably, there would be a generator somewhere inside the complex. We watched through field glasses for more than an hour when suddenly he emerged, oddly dressed, in a silk dressing gown and pyjamas. It was still early evening. He went over to speak to a second man in faded blue overalls. His pilot? The helicopter was parked nearby, a four-seater Robinson R44. The two of them exchanged a few words, then the commander went back into the house. It's a shame we can't hear them, I said. The commander is leaving at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, Hunter replied. I stared at him. How do you know? I can lip read, Cossack. It comes in quite useful sometimes. Maybe you should learn to do the same. I hardly slept that night. We retreated back into the undergrowth and hooked up our hammocks once more, but we couldn't risk the luxury of a campfire and didn't speak a word. We swallowed down some cold rations and closed our eyes. But I lay there for a long time, all sorts of thoughts running through my head. I really had hoped that Hunter might let me make the kill. My old psychiatrist, Dr Steiner, would not have been happy if I had told him this, but I thought it would be much easier to assassinate a drug lord, an obviously evil human being, than a defenceless woman in New York. It would have been a good test for me, my first kill, but I could see now that it was out of the question. The position of the helicopter in relation to the main house meant that we would have, at most, ten seconds to make the shot. Just ten steps and the commander would be safely inside. If I hesitated or were still missed, we would not have a second opportunity. Sefton Nye had already told me. I was here to assist and to observe. I knew I had to accept it. Hunter was the one in charge. We were in position much earlier than we needed to be, at seven o'clock. Hunter had been carrying the weapon he was going to use ever since he had left Iquitos. It was a .88 Winchester sniper rifle, a very good weapon, perfect for long-range shooting with minimal recoil. I watched as he loaded it with a single cartridge and adjusted the sniper scope. It seemed to me that he and the weapon were one. I noticed this already on the shooting range on Malagosto. When Hunter held a gun, it became part of him. The minutes ticked away. I used my field glasses to scan the compound, waiting for the commander to reappear. The soldiers were in their towers or patrolling the fence, but the atmosphere was lazy. They were really only half awake. At ten to eight, the pilot came out of his quarters, yawning and stretching. We watched as he climbed into the helicopter, went through his checks and started the rotors. Very quickly they began to turn, then disappeared in a blur. All around us, birds and monkeys scattered through the branches, frightened away by the noise. The commander had still not stepped out at two minutes to eight, and I began to wonder if he had changed his mind. I knew the time from the cheap watch that I had bought for myself at the airport. I was sweating. I wondered if it was nerves or the close, stifling heat of the morning. Something touched my shoulder. My first thought that it was a leaf that had fallen from a tree, but I knew at once that it was too heavy for a leaf. It moved. 
my hand twitched and it was all that I could do to stop myself reaching out and attempting to flick this thing, whatever it was, away. I felt its weight shift as it went from my shoulder onto my neck and I realised it was alive and that it was moving. It reached the top of my shirt. I shuddered as its legs prickled delicately against my skin. Even without seeing it, I knew it was some sort of spider, a large one. It had lowered itself onto me while I crouched behind Hunter. My mouth had gone dry. I could feel the blood pounding in the jugular vein that ran up the side of my neck and I knew that the creature would have been drawn to that area, fascinated by the warmth and the movement. And that was where it remained, clinging to me like some hideous growth. Hunter had not seen what had happened. He was still focused on the compound, his eye pressed against the sniper scope. I didn't dare call out. I had to keep my breath steady without turning my head. Straining, I looked out of the corner of my eye and saw it. I recognised it at once. A black widow, one of the most venomous spiders in the Amazon. It still refused to move. Why wouldn't it continue on its way? I tensed myself, waiting for it to continue its journey across my face and onto my hair, but it stayed where it was. I didn't know if Hunter had brought anti-venom with him, but it would make no difference if he had. If it bit me in the neck, I would die very quickly. Maybe it was waiting to strike even now, savouring the moment. The spider was huge. My skin was recoiling, my whole body sending out alarm signals that my brain could not ignore. I wanted to call Hunter, but even speaking one word might be enough to alarm the spider. I was filled with rage. After the failure of New York, I'd been determined that I would give a good account of myself in Peru. And so far, I hadn't put a foot wrong. I couldn't believe that this had happened to me. And now I tried to think of something I could do anything but I was helpless. There was no further movement in the compound. Everyone was waiting for the commander to make his appearance. I knew it would happen at any moment. It was strangely ironic that I might die at exactly the same time as him. In the end, I whistled. It was such an odd thing to do that it would surely attract Hunter's attention. It did. He turned and saw me standing there, paralysed, no colour in my face. He saw the spider. And it was right then that the door of the house opened and the commander came out wearing an olive green tunic and carrying a briefcase, followed by two men with a third walking ahead. I knew at that moment that I was dead. There was nothing Hunter could do for me. He had his instructions from Scorpio and less than 10 seconds in which to carry them out. I'd almost forgotten about the helicopter, but now the whine of its rotors enveloped me. The commander was walking steadily towards the cockpit. Hunter made an instant decision. He sprang to his feet and moved behind me. Was he really going to abort the mission and save my life? Surely it had to be one or the other. Shoot the commander or get rid of the spider. He couldn't do both. And after everything he had told me, his choice was obvious. I didn't know what he was doing. He'd positioned himself behind me. The commander had almost reached the helicopter. 
his hand stretching out towards the door. Then, for no warning at all, Hunter fired. I heard the explosion and felt a streak of pain across my neck, as if it had been sliced with a red-hot sword. The commander grabbed hold of his chest and crumpled, the blood oozing over his clenched fingers. He had been shot in the heart. The men surrounded him, threw themselves flat, afraid they would be targeted next. I was also bleeding. Blood was pouring down the side of my neck, but the spider had gone. That was when I understood. Hunter had aimed through the spider and at the commander. He'd shot them both with the same bullet. Let's move, he whispered. There was no time to discuss what had happened. The bodyguards were already panicking, shouting and pointing in our direction. One of them opened fire, sending bullets randomly into the rainforest. The guards in the towers were searching for us. More men were running out of the huts. We snatched up our equipment and ran, allowing the massive leaves and branches to swallow us up. We left behind us a dead drug lord with a single bullet and a hundred tiny fragments of black widow in his heart. You saved my life, I said. Hunter smiled. Taking a life, saving a life, and with just one bullet. That's not bad going, he said. We had put 15 miles between ourselves and the compound, following the red pins until the fading light made it impossible to continue, and we had to stop for fear of losing our way. We had reached the log, the campsite where we had spent the night before, and this time I was careful not to sit on the hollow tree. Hunter spent 10 minutes stretching out tripwires all around us. These were almost invisible, connected to little black boxes that he screwed into the trunks of the trees. Once again, we didn't dare light a fire. After we had hooked up our hammocks, we ate our dinner straight out of the tin. It amused me that Hunter insisted on carrying the empty tins with us. He'd just killed a man, but he wouldn't litter the rainforest. Neither of us was ready for sleep. We sat cross-legged on the ground, listening out for the sound of approaching feet. It was a bright night. The moon was shining and everything around us was a strange silvery green. To my surprise, Hunter had produced a quarter bottle of malt whiskey. It was the last thing I would have expected him to bring along. I watched him as he held it to his lips. It's a little tradition of mine, he explained in a low voice. A good malt whiskey after a kill. This is a 25-year-old Glamorangie, older than you. He held it out to me. Have some, Cossack. I expect your nerves need it after that little incident. That spider certainly chose its moment. I can't believe what you did, I said. There was a bandage around my neck, already stained with sweat and blood. It hurt a lot, and I knew that I would always have a scar where Hunter's bullet had cut me. But, in a strange way, I was glad. I did not want to forget this night. I sipped the whiskey. It burnt the back of my throat. What now? I asked. I slugged back to Iquitos, then to Paris. At least it'll be a little cooler over there. And no damn mosquitoes. He slapped one on the side of his neck. We were both at peace. The commander was dead, killed in extraordinary circumstances. We had the whiskey. 
the moon was shining and we were all alone in the rainforest. That's the only way that I can explain the conversation that followed. At least, that was how it seemed at the time. Hunter, I said, why are you with Scorpio? I would never normally have asked. It was wrong. It was insolent. But out here, it didn't seem to matter. I thought he might snap at me, but he reached out for the bottle and answered quietly. Why does anyone join Scorpio? Why did you? You know why, I said. I didn't really have any choice. We all make choices, Cossack. Who we are in this world, what we do in it. Generous or selfish? Happy or sad? Good or evil? It's all down to choice. And you chose this? I'm not sure it was the right choice, but I've got nobody else to blame. If that's what you meant, he paused, holding the bottle in front of him. I was in a pub, he said. I was in the middle of London, in Soho. Me and a couple of friends, we were just having a drink, minding our own business. But there was a man in there, a taxi driver as it turned out, a big fat guy in a sheepskin coat. He overheard us talking and realised that we were all army. And he began to make obnoxious remarks, stupid things. I should have just ignored him or walked out. That was what my friends wanted to do. But I'd been drinking myself and the two of us had got into an argument. It was so bloody stupid. The next thing I knew, I'd knocked him to the ground. Even then, there were a dozen ways I could have hit him. But I let my training get the better of me. He didn't get up and suddenly the police were there and I realised what I'd done. He paused. I'd killed him. He fell silent. All around us, the insects continued their chatter. There wasn't a breath of wind. I was dismissed from the army and thrown into jail, he went on. As it happened, I wasn't locked up for very long. My old regiment pulled a few strings and I had a good lawyer. He managed to put in a claim of self-defence and I was let out on appeal. But after that, I was finished. No one was going to employ me. And even if they did, do you think I wanted to spend the rest of my life as a security guard or behind a desk? I didn't know what to do. Then Scorpio came along and offered me this. And I said, yes. Are you married? I asked. He nodded. Yeah, I've been married three years and there's a kid on the way. At least I'm going to have enough money to be able to look after him. He paused. If, if it's a boy. You see what I mean? My choice. The whiskey bottle passed between us one last time. It was almost empty. Maybe it's not too late for you to change your mind, he said. I was startled. What do you mean? I'm thinking about New York. I'm thinking about the last few weeks and today. You seem like a nice kid to me, Cossack. Not one of Scorpio's usual recruits at all. I wonder if you've really got it in you to be like me, Marat and Sam. They don't give a damn. They've got no imagination. But you, I can do this, I said. But do you really want to? I'm not trying to dissuade you. That's the last thing I want to do. 
I just want you to be aware that once you start, there's no going back. After the first kill, that's it. He hesitated. We both did. I wasn't sure how to respond. If I backed out now, Scorpio would kill me. I rather doubt it. They'd be annoyed, of course, but I think you're exaggerating your own importance. They'd very quickly forget you. Anyway, you've learned enough to keep away from them. You could change your identity, your appearance, start somewhere new. The world is a big place and there are all sorts of different things you could be doing in it. Is that what you're advising me? I asked. I'm not advising you anything. I'm just laying out the options. I'm not sure what I would have said if the conversation had continued, but just then we heard something, the croaking of a frog at the edge of the clearing. At least that was what it would have sounded like to anyone approaching, but it wasn't a frog that was native to the Amazon rainforest. One of the wires that Hunter had set down had just been tripped, and what we were hearing was a recording, a warning. Hunter was on his feet instantly, crouching down, signalling to me with an outstretched hand. I had a gun. It had been supplied to me when we were in Iquitos, a Browning 9mm semi-automatic, popular with the Peruvian army and unusual in that it held 13 rounds of ammunition. It was fully loaded. I heard another sound, the single crack of a branch breaking. About 20 metres away, a beam of light flickered between the trees, thrown by a powerful torch. There was no time to gather up our things and no point in wondering who they were or how they had followed us here. We had already planned what to do if this happened. We got up and began to move. They came in from all sides. Six of the commander's men had taken it upon themselves to follow us into the rainforest. Why? Their employer was dead and there was going to be no reward for bringing in his killers. Perhaps they were genuinely angry. We had, after all, removed the source of their livelihood. I saw all of them as they arrived. The moon was so bright and they barely had any need of their torches. They were high on drugs, dirty and dishevelled with hollow faces, bright eyes and straggly beards. Two of them had cigarettes dangling from their mouths. They were wearing bits and pieces of military uniform with machine guns slung over their shoulders. One of them had a dog, a pit bull terrier on a chain. The dog had brought them here. It began to bark, straining against the leash, knowing we were close. But the men saw no one. They had arrived at an empty clearing with a tree lying on its side. Nobody in front of it, nobody behind. Termites crawling over the bark. Our empty hammocks were in front of them. Perhaps their torches picked up the empty whiskey bottle on the ground. Vamos a cello. One of them gave the order in Spanish, his voice deep and guttural. As one, the men opened fire, spraying the clearing with bullets, shooting into the surrounding jungle. After the peace of the night, the noise was deafening. For at least 30 seconds, the clearing blazed white 
and the surrounding leaves and branches were chopped into smithereens. None of the men knew what they were doing. They didn't care. They had no target. We waited until their clips had run out and then we stood up. Deadwood cascading off our shoulders. We'd been right next to the soldiers, lying face down inside the fallen tree. We were covered with termites, which were crawling over our backs and into our clothes. But termites do not bite you. They do not sting. We'd disturbed their habitat and they were all over us, but we didn't care. We opened fire. The soldiers saw us too late. I was not sure what happened next, whether I actually killed any of them. There was a blaze of gunfire, again incredibly loud, and I saw the ragged figures being blown off their feet. One of them managed to fire again, but the bullets went nowhere into the air. I, f I was firing widely, but Hunter was utterly precise and mechanical. Choosing his targets, then squeezing the trigger again and again, it was all over very quickly. The six men were dead. There didn't seem to be any more on the way. I brushed the termites off my shoulders and out of my hair. Is that all of them? I whispered. So, Hunter said. But we'd better get moving. We collected our things. I shot them, I said. What you were saying to me? You were wrong. I was with you. I killed some of them. I wasn't even sure it was true. Hunter could have taken out all six himself, but we weren't going to argue about it now. He shook his head. If you killed, he put the emphasis on the first word. You did it in the dark, in self-defence. That doesn't make you a murderer. It's not the same. Why not? I couldn't understand him. What was he trying to achieve? He turned and suddenly there was a real darkness in his eyes. You want to know what the difference is, Yasun? He used my real name for the first time. We have another job in Paris, very different to this one. You want to know what it's really like to kill? You're about to find out.